Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Libby Woodfin about her book, Learning That Lasts, Challenging, Engaging, and Empowering Students with Deeper Instruction. Libby, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trevor. I'm happy to be here. It's good to have you here. I'm wondering if we can begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. Um, Well, I am a a former teacher, fifth and sixth grade teacher, and a former high school counselor. I live in Western Mass, um, where uh, I've been working for EL Education here for a little bit more than nine years. And in my current role as director of publications, uh, I've been really lucky uh, to author four books um, in the last couple of years. I have one primary co-author, Ron Berger, and then other uh, various amazing co-author colleagues um, from EL. So that's sort of my my status at the moment. I'm always get excited when I have a chance to talk to someone who either is a teacher or has spent a lot of time in the classroom. So I'm wondering um, what initially inspired you to go into teaching, and what experiences in in that part of career have shaped the way that you see schools and education. Sure. Um, well, I I come from a long line of teachers, so I, I come by it really naturally. Um, I, I tried hard uh, when I was in college to study other things. I studied communications for a while and English, but um, I always kept coming back to education as my passion area, um, and I was able to focus as an undergraduate on social justice education, um, and that led me to my first teaching job at the Greenfield Center School in Greenfield, Mass., where I taught fifth and sixth grade. And um, the Greenfield Center School is the um, original lab school for the responsive classroom, which is an approach uh, focused on the connection between academics and social-emotional learning. So it was a really great place for me to bring together a lot of my interests as a teacher, and it was just an amazing place to land um, for my first teaching job um, because of the innovative uh, things that they're doing at that school and still doing there. Um, the creators of the Responsive Classroom were also the founders of the school, and some of them still taught there when I was there. Um, so Ruth Charney, who is the author of Teaching Children to Care, mm-hmm. uh, hired me, and she was the lead teacher for my team. And then um, Chip Wood, who's the author of Yardsticks, he was my, you know, quote, assistant teacher for a month when my actual co-teacher was away. Um, and it was funny, you know, because he's this incredible master teacher. Um, he let me be in charge, and he tried to stay pretty low-key. Um, but he was in the classroom, you know, half the day, every day for a month, and I just learned a ton from him. Um, so I had some amazing mentors there. 
And I really believe very strongly in their approach. So it was a great place for me to start my career. Um, and they also have a publishing division um, there, and they hired me to write my first book when I was 24, 25. Um, and so it's been a really great dovetail with my work. And um, Ron Berger, my, my co-author who I mentioned at EL Education, he also lives in Western Mass, and he was a teacher out here for 25-plus years, and he was also connected to many of those same um, Greenfield Center School teachers. In fact, Chip Wood, I think, was the principal at the school where he did his student teaching a million years ago. And um, I think that Ron and I have both been influenced by the responsive classroom, and probably the responsive classroom has been influenced by Ron since mm-hmm. he was really in that milieu, you know, during that time. And um, so I think you can see the influence in a lot of our work. You know, I think about our book management in the active classroom, I think especially has been influenced by responsive classroom approaches. But all of our our work is. And, you know, I I left there um, to become a high school counselor in a large comprehensive high school, which is uh, about as different from Greenfield Planner School as could be. Um, But it was equally formative for me, A, because it really um, solidified what a difference it makes to kids when they have people on their side and people who believe in them and can help them through access their um, capacities as students and people, and B, because I had a front row seat to what a hard work environment it can be uh, to be in a big school like that when people aren't working towards a common mission. And I, I came to EL Education right after leaving that school, and I was immediately struck by what a difference a mission makes in a school. It was a real night and day um, contrast for me. So I think those those experiences have brought me here um, and and a really sort of natural way. I feel like a lot of things sort of make sense for me for where I am right now in my career. Uh, I think you make a really good point in that uh, it, it is different working for a school or an organization that has its own mission um, in addition mm-hmm. to serving kids in, in the local community. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on the mission of Responsive Classroom and of EL Education and and how you see them as being uh, similar organizationally. Sure. Well, the Responsive Classroom, I don't know their mission exactly, but their approach is is really about this connection between um, academics and social-emotional sort of development in kids. And so the idea that, that the two are not, separate. Um, So when I was teaching there, um, you know, for example, um, at the end of, um, you know, a a fieldwork experience or something with the kids, we would sit in a circle and the kids would um, sort of debrief the experience, not by like what they personally did, but what they noticed other kids doing to help them in the group, um, to further their work, et cetera. It was just this part of daily life where kids um, noticed each other and and reflected on what they saw other people doing um, and what they were doing themselves to sort of be good community members. Um, and I think that that's in sync with a lot of what we believe at EL um, around um you know, character being built through 
purposeful work, you know, that we build our character by learning together and doing things together, that they're not these separate, um, not these falsely separate things. Um, and so I think in that way, uh, the two organizations are really in sync. And it's funny because we, you know, out here in Western Massachusetts, there's not, there's, we're like one of only a couple of organizations out here that they're sort of in the same um, space in mm-hmm. education and responsive classrooms just up the road. And yeah, one of our offices is here in Western Mass. Our other main office is in New York City. Um, but it's funny that we're all sort of here doing this similar work. And I feel really lucky that I've gotten to be kind of in in the mix in both places. Yeah, it's hard to believe you're you're right there in the same part of the country. I know. Great. Lucky. So um, I'm interested to learn more about how you and Ron came to write this particular book, Learning That Lasts. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that project came together? Sure. Um, So we have a book um, at EL Education that is really sort of the Bible for the 4,000-plus teachers um, that work in our network schools and for um, our staff. Um, other, other schools also access the book um, as well, and it's called The Core Practices. And the core practices for EL education uh, describe our vision for improving schools. It's a comprehensive book um, that addresses five key dimensions of life in school, uh, curriculum, instruction, assessment, culture and character and leadership. Um, and within each dimension, there are five or ten core practices that uh, we think are vital. Um, and so this is an important book for us as an organization, but it's really not very exciting reading. It's a pretty straightforward description of each practice. And so what we're trying to do is write books that bring each of those dimensions of life and school um, to life. So uh, the books that we've been writing are full of case studies, and we have accompanying videos that make them a thousand times richer, which show the practices in action in EL schools across the country. So Leaders of Their Own Learning, which we published a few years ago, is our book about assessment. But it's our approach to assessment, which is student-engaged assessment. And Learning That Last is our book about instruction. But it's our approach to instruction, which is deeper instruction. Um, so part of the mission at EL is to help teachers and students fulfill their highest aspirations. Um, And it's really tough for teachers to feel that they're fulfilling their highest aspirations when they feel stuck in a grind. And so we wanted this book uh, to help teachers uh, feel like they can be uh, creative agents in their classroom, that they can keep honing their craft, that they can make instructional decisions, um, you know, even within a situation where they don't feel like they have much choice about curriculum or text, um, they can help students sort of come to those aha moments that fuel their work. Um, Because no teacher is in the profession for the money. It's really about helping students learn and hopefully learn deeply and feel positive about themselves. And so that's why we wrote this book is really to help uh, teachers um, hone their craft, uh, new and veteran. Um, So in our pipeline of books, are books on curriculum, culture and character, leadership that also will illuminate those core practices. Um, and in the meantime, we have written uh, Management in the Active Classroom and Transformational Literacy, which certainly fall within those five dimensions of school, but are a little bit more specific. Um, so that's how we came to write 
learning that lasts. And, and um, Ron, as you know, has been involved in the deeper learning community for many years, and um, it's an important um, part of, of how we approach instruction. Something that struck me as I was reading through the introduction is that there's this juxtaposition between uh, conversations in our in our culture around teacher quality and um, what you're trying to address in this book is teaching quality. And so I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could try and unpack the difference between the two. Sure. I mean, it's a subtle um, but really important difference. Um, like a lot of semantic differences, it often uh, it has a lot of importance. Um, so we talk about teacher quality, or more specifically, poor teacher quality as a hindrance often to our efforts to improve schools. Um, it's a pretty static term, right, that tends to imply um, a lot of times that teachers are either born great or they're not, mm-hmm. so they have it or they don't. Um, and in the education space, it, it really holds us back, I think, from taking the steps we need to take to improve the quality of instruction in our classrooms. And so when we use the term teaching quality, uh, we're contextualizing things much more and making quality more dynamic. You know, so, so my teaching quality can be really good on Monday, but on Tuesday it actually might be pretty poor. It's dynamic. It fluctuates based on a lot of factors. And I think what's important about the term teaching quality is that it honors the capacity of teachers, even veteran teachers, to keep getting better at what they do. You know, there's always room for improvement. And we want the book to be for every teacher, new and veteran, and we hope that those teachers who may already feel, you know, quote, good in a static sense um, will find nuggets of inspiration that help them push into new areas and make instruction even stronger and deeper for students because I think that everyone has the capacity uh, to keep pushing on quality. Um, and we don't want it to be a static term, and we don't want teachers themselves to feel that they're either good or bad or for parents to feel that way or for anyone to feel that someone is either good or bad, has good quality or does not have good quality. And I think people in, in different places in their career can all find something valuable in the book. It's it's a wealth of, of information and ideas, and as you mentioned, some, some interesting case studies as well. You, you've mentioned uh, deeper learning, and so I'm wondering... Uh, what is deeper learning and what is, how can uh, deeper instruction help, uh, help to get at deeper learning? What's, what's the relationship there as you see it? Well, um, the, the common definition of deeper learning in the world today um, has six parts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's mastery of, of core academic content, critical thinking and problem solving, collaboration, communication, self-directed learning, academic mindsets. And, you know, this list is sort of simple, right? But it's not that helpful because it's really broad. Um, right. And it's it's kind of like everything you, you would want. It's like the recipe for a perfect student. Mm-hmm. Um, when you really unpack each of those things, like a mastery of core academic content, wow, that's huge. Um, <laughs> and so... Um, all of those things are worthy, of course, but how do you start? You know, how do you look at your textbook or your district curriculum and think about how to make all of these things a priority? Um, and even without this sort of common definition, I think that deeper learning conjures up images for teachers that are wonderful, 
Um, but they can also be intimidating in some cases. So, so thinking about a very in-depth scientific study, kids are out in the stream with their nets and their specimen containers and things like that, that really can lead to deeper learning, um, but can sometimes feel really intimidating um, and maybe even not possible because of constraints on time and budgets. And sometimes teachers feel just nervous um, about the unstructured nature of these kinds of activities and projects. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I felt that way when I was first teaching. And so the idea of, of deeper instruction um, is to uh, sort of make uh, plain some of the, the relatively simple instructional moves that teachers can make to sort of lead to deeper learning. So, for example, uh, setting up a Socratic seminar in your English class in which students are talking to each other mm. and citing evidence from text versus um, a more traditional style of sort of teacher asking questions about a book with some students answering and some not. Um, <clears throat> so our effort is to um, kind of demystify deeper learning and sort of break it into some parts uh, that give teachers more access um, to opportunities for deeper learning for their kids. So, so the deeper instruction framework, which we outline in the book, um, is uh, for instruction that challenges, engages, and empowers students. Um, and so when we talk about challenge, we're talking about, of course, meeting or exceeding standards and like really paying attention to that. But we're also talking about cognitive rigor, paying attention to that um, in lesson plans, you know, uh, applying, analyzing, synthesizing complex ideas, considering multiple perspectives, um, it also means um, that learning is courageous. You know, it involves risk-taking, grappling, mm. uncertainty, and hopefully some playful exploration. Um, and we talk about engagement. We're really talking about pursuing uh, worthy questions, you know, asking and answering questions that require critical thinking and uh, like a, a scholarly engagement. Um, and we're also talking about active learning, which I think is what a lot of people think about. Uh, when they think about engagement. Um, but more so, we're talking about ways to get all students participating and holding themselves accountable and being responsible for their learning. And then when we talk about empowering, we're talking about empowering students with tools for learning, helping them own their learning, setting goals, reflecting um, on what they've learned, how they've learned, taking responsibility for themselves, for their communities, giving them a voice, um, and we also want students uh, to inspire students to create um, high-quality work, you know, to feel empowered to do more than they think possible. So that's really the relationship. Um, you know, if you think of, of deeper learning as the goal, um, our effort here is to um, offer some concrete instructional moves for teachers that can help them get there and that don't, uh, necessarily feel like they need to be a huge in-depth involved uh, project that that might sort of shut down a teacher, especially a novice teacher. You you mentioned risk taking a moment ago, um, and I know that uh, character education is is important at EL, and it's something that's kind of woven throughout the book, even as the book touches on literacy and math and science and social studies. So. I'm also wondering if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between 
academic education and character education. Why, why is character education so important as well? Um, well, I touched on this a little bit when I was talking about the responsive classroom, um, sort of weaving back in here. Um, but I, I think that, that people build character in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of settings. And school certainly isn't the only place. Um, but it's a big place for kids because they spend a lot of time there. Um, when students are in school, they spend a lot of their time, you know, quote, doing academics, mm-hmm. particularly as they get older. And it's important that this time involved in academics is also building character. Um, so, you know, if students are um, in an academic setting all day where they are obediently following directions and listening to the teacher 90% of the time and maybe, you know, completing sort of rote work. They build some skills for sure, but they miss out on many others. You know, they don't necessarily learn how to collaborate or communicate or persevere when things are challenging. Uh, they don't necessarily learn to find their voice or see the purpose um, of their learning. And I think that deeper learning gives kids an opportunity to do all those things. You know, kids work together to do something that's often a real puzzle for them, a real challenge. They engage in discourse with each other. It's not all about the teacher, you know, or they work together to be of service in their communities or to solve a problem in their communities. I think it's through purposeful work um, like that's our that's our angle, right? That we that purposeful work um, builds character in kids, and I think that that's the lesson that's really important for kids to carry out into the world mm-hmm. as adults, um, and it's really central to to who we are as as EL education, and it's really central to the book and into all of our books. Really, is to to not miss those opportunities to to for kids to see the purpose and what they're doing. And I think it's a, a, a very unique approach to character education. You know, when I think about character education uh, from when I went to high school or in elementary schools where I visited, it, it's oftentimes it means uh, the teacher's reading a picture book or uh, the character trait of the month is posted in the hallways. Mm-hmm. And you're actually talking mm-hmm. about changing the work that we're doing in school in order to facilitate personal growth. Yeah. I mean, you know, sadly, um, when I did my practicum work uh, in elementary counseling, I didn't become an elementary counselor, but I did do a, uh, an internship experience, and I worked with a counselor who, um, you know, the kids came there once a week, every class, and it was called, I think it was called character class. And um, one of the lessons that she was really proud of, the kids came in and they were given a, a picture to draw on. And it was all these cats, and they all wore mittens. And the kids had to draw, uh, they had to use as many colors as they were old and, and color in the mittens. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mittens were called their helping hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they sang a song called I Care Cat. You know, and that was sort of a lesson. And I was like, wow, I'm not really sure sure that they're learning how to be good people. Um, So I think we have a long way to go overall. um, But I do think think we're on the right track with what we do. We all Mm -hmm. think that as an organization, um, it's something that we all really believe in very strongly. And even as adults in our work, 
Um, you know, I personally um, grow so much by doing work with people, you know, digging in and doing work. Not just having a meeting about something, but having a meeting where we're doing something and wrestling with something. And I think that, that that's the meaningful um, that's the meaningful character building uh, work that we want to get to with kids. I'm wondering if you can share an example or two, maybe like an assignment or a unit that would be familiar to those of us who have been students and also been teachers. And how could that unit, you know, so I was a teacher in California and every fourth grader in California public schools learns about the missions. Um, You know, when I was a student in Illinois, we learned about Abraham Lincoln, right? And so Uh I'm thinking about those, those common experiences that many of us have. How could those be modified by teachers in order to better challenge, engage, and, and empower the students in the class? Sure. Well, you know, in terms of of something that that every teacher um, probably finds themselves doing, there are a lot of examples in the book. But but I have you know examples from my own experience as a teacher when I miss tons of opportunities. Um, to challenge, engage, and empower my students, I'm sure. Um, you know, there are a couple that jump to mind. One um, is the sort of classic literature circle. Um, so I read a lot of these when I was a teacher. I don't think I did them very well. Uh, my preparation uh, would be, of course, to read the book and then to uh, write questions. So to come to the discussion with notes with my questions. And... I would um, ask a question, and then I would call on kids who had their hands raised, and sometimes they would riff off each other, but not often. Usually they would each sort of answer the question themselves, (laughs) and then I would sort of move on to the next question. And so the first problem um, was that I didn't really pay attention to what kind of questions I was asking. Mm -hmm. And I think we spent a lot of time in the book talking about questions and strategically pre-planning questions so that they increase in complexity, you know, so that we are, we're asking something different of kids cognitively as we ask questions. We bring them deeper into uh, whatever they're reading with strategic questions. So I never looked at my questions that I wrote to see what I was actually asking kids to do cognitively. Mm -hmm. I'm sure many of them were recall questions, you know, the sort of lowest level of Bloom's taxonomy. Or I was asking them sort of feeling questions or how the text related to their lives, um, things that I thought were sort of important and would generate good conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, So, And then the other problem was that um, my technique allowed um, many students to stay really quiet. So if I could do it all over again, I would use discussion protocols to get students talking to each other and not to me, and I would ask them to analyze and provide evidence from the text. You know, I would do pre-reading activities with them to engage them maybe with vocabulary or tricky concepts. Um, So there's a lot that I would do different. I think literature circles or sort of English class environments um, are often structured you know, without getting the participation from from every student um, and without really thinking about the kinds of questions. And I think that that's a big, um, that's a big learning um, for me as I sort of progressed in my career. Um, and then the second example 
Um, I'm not actually giving you examples of like particular units, but I think these are particular like ways that it's pretty common um, to teach, and was certainly mm-hmm. for me. Um, the, the the second example is in math. Um, you know, so when I first started teaching math, I did everything very traditionally. I sort of quote taught a concept, and then we practiced a few, and then some kids engaged with me by offering solutions or asking questions, and then some didn't. And then I had them start their homework. And, uh, you know, I followed my textbook start to finish uh, for the most part, except for I just skipped the chapters that I couldn't get to. Um, and this is how I was taught math, and I think it's how a lot of people were taught math and still teach it. Um, and our approach to math and learning that less is, you know, focused on giving students really needy problems um, and challenging them to grapple with those problems and then to engage in discourse with each other about the problem, to defend their reasoning, mm-hmm. to change their minds. Um, so I think with this approach, all three parts of the framework, the deeper instruction framework, challenge, engage, and empower are really alive every day in math class. You know, problems are, are selected to be challenging but not impossible Students are engaged, you know, by the process of grappling and figuring it out and working with each other, and they're empowered, you know, by having a voice in the learning process, by communicating with each other, working collaboratively, reflecting, you know, on their process, and my math class had none of that, probably. You know, probably for my final year in the classroom, I started to have ahas about letting students grapple longer. Um, yeah, I think that we are often inclined as teachers to bail students out hmm. when they struggle. You know, I became much more concerned um, that my math students understood concepts than that they memorized a formula or could do this, the problem 30 times for homework or whatever. And one of my favorite moments as a teacher really was when my students finally understood the relationship among ratios, fractions, and percents. That was like, okay, <laughs> I've I've won teaching now. They understand the the relationship among fractions, decimals, and percent uh, fractions. I said fractions, percents, and ratios. Um, anyway, that's that. Those are a couple um, examples. Something that that I notice in the book is that you're sort of calling on teachers to reflect on what is it that they really want students to learn and then considering all of the options that they have available to them um, in order to get at that, right? So if, if we want students mm-hmm. to improve in their critical thinking, um, we want to be sure and, and return to Bloom's taxonomy and, uh, mm-hmm. and look at that alongside the questions we're planning to ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, Something I was was interested in is the different uh, lesson formats that you address in the book. You talk about a, mm-hmm. a workshop model, a protocol model, and then a discovery model. And you're not making a case that one of them is, is better than any of the others, but that mm-hmm. um, uh, they, they are tailored to, to different end goals. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about these different lesson formats and... Um, when each of them might make the most sense to use. Sure. I mean, you're exactly right. We're not necessarily saying one is any better than the other, and we're also not saying that these are the only three possible mm-hmm. great great lesson formats. Um, we really chose to highlight them um, for their power to engage students in their learning, you know, to, to feed curiosity and connection 
um, to compel students to work collaboratively and to grapple. Um, so I'm glad you said that. They're, they're, we are not preferencing uh, one over the other or these over any other as long as um, students, as you say, I mean teachers, as you say, are really clear um, about purpose. What, what do you want students to get out of this lesson? Um, so the first one is the, the workshop model, which is, uh, we didn't invent the workshop model. It's ubiquitous in schools around the country. Um, it's a great format because it has really distinct components that limit the amount of teacher talk. Um, you've heard me say this probably now already three or four times during this interview, like really limiting the, the focus that's always on teachers in the classroom, right? And so we want to really put a lot of that focus back on students and giving them to think and do. And the workshop uh, model is great for that. So several years ago, um, sparked mostly by the introduction of the Common Core Standards, we developed what we call Workshop 2.0. Um, and so typically in a, in a workshop 1.0 or sort of the original workshop model, the mini lesson or modeling will happen first, followed by guided practice and then by independent practice. And so the difference between 1.0 and 2.0 uh, is that 2.0 gives students time to grapple with text or problems before a mini lesson occurs. So, you know, after some time working with the text, or the problem students will um, usually follow some kind of structure, like a protocol or something that will allow them to discuss it uh, and interact with the material somehow. And the mini lesson would happen after this, which gives the teacher a chance to observe and listen in and then use the mini lesson to sort of clear up misconceptions. Um, workshop 2.0 doesn't replace workshop 1.0 by any means, mm -hmm. uh, but we urge teachers to consider the purpose of the lesson and to use workshop 2.0 whenever um, possible to give students a chance to sort of construct their own meaning uh, without the teacher modeling it first. Um, I think when learning certain new skills, it would be better to go with 1.0 so that students aren't thrown into the deep end with no idea of what to do because it's not productive. Um, but when they have enough of a base to be successful grappling on their own, uh, I think that 2.0 is usually going to be a better choice. Uh, so that's the workshop model. And then um, protocols. So, so protocols we use a lot at EL. Um, a protocol is, is a set of steps for students to follow. Um, and timeframes for each step, and norms for participation and interactions. Um, a protocol can be really simple and short. You know, a great example is think, pair, share, which is a super simple way to engage everyone in the uh, more diverse learning styles. So rather than only hearing from a few students, you would ask a question or pose an idea and ask students to think about it independently or even write about it, like jot some notes, like for a minute, mm -hmm. and then share out with a partner for a minute each, and then share with the whole class. So when the teacher asks for input, you're much more likely to hear from um, a greater diversity of students who are warmed up, who feel more confident, who can say things like, well, my partner and I were just talking about this. Um, and you, um, you get greater participation uh, from students from a, a simple thing like that. And it can really disrupt the flow of a typical lecture, you know, in which students are mostly passive 
We've even used it at our national conference, you know, with more than a thousand people in the audience. We don't want them to be passive either. So mm-hmm. we ask them to interact and process, you know, what they're hearing. You know, well, think about what I just said. Think, pair, share. I'll give you three minutes, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that really um, can knock people into like, oh, I'm engaged. I'm responsible for myself. I need to talk about this. Um, and then a protocol-based lesson um, is just what it sounds like. It's a protocol um, that's a structure for the whole lesson. Um, where all kids have roles and responsibilities like the facilitator, the timekeeper, et cetera, um, which really puts them in charge and takes the focus off the teacher. Um, depending on what you want kids to learn, again, you would choose different protocols for different purposes. You know, if the purpose is to go really deep with a text, you would choose one kind of protocol. Um, if the purpose is for students to be looking at lots of artifacts, you might choose a different protocol. Um, yeah, you mentioned Socratic seminars earlier. Science talks are also good examples. Um, they allow teachers to, I mean, students to really talk to each other and to learn how to, like, cite evidence from their text, how to respond to one another. You know, I hear what you're saying, but I disagree because on page X, Y, or Z. You know, so really learning the mechanics of those kinds of conversations, I think, frees students up once they learn a protocol to just sort of settle in more to thinking about their own questions and ideas in a new way. Um, and, you know, I think that kids won't always be able to do protocols without support at first. Now they need practice. They have to sort of rehearse them and get feedback. Um, but once they are really humming in a class, it's a really beautiful thing uh, to watch students really just take charge and, and start the conversation. Um, and then uh, the last one we highlight um, is discovery-based lessons. Um, so this is a, a format where the teacher doesn't necessarily provide any direct instruction in how to find the answer to a question. So students would be given materials um, or a variety of texts or something like that, um, and they need to uh, often work collaboratively to find an answer. Um, and usually there's a debrief, which is important in all of these structures. Um, discovery-based lessons, it's important that students have enough prior knowledge and skills so that they have an idea of where to begin, you know? So again, they're not thrown into the deep end. The example that we offer in the book, which is probably helpful to have an illustration here, um, is from a primary classroom where kids are given all the materials that they need um, to create um, in pairs a habitat for snails, live snails. And so the teacher created a model um, in the middle of the classroom, and he gives the kids some initial instruction on handling the snails and sets up the parameters or the expectations, you know, that they're going to adopt the snail, and they need to create a home for it that will help it thrive. And so the kids then, for 30 minutes or whatever, a teacher that wouldn't even need to be in the classroom, you know, they're looking at the model, they're making the habitat, they're thinking about what they want to do for their snails, you know, and they generate questions, you know, like, I wonder if my snail would like lettuce. How often does it need water? You know, and so this is where they start, like, um, the, the hook, you know, is there. It works. It's an engaging lesson, and it, it can hook them into digging into, you know, for example, like a challenging text about snail habitats because they are hooked now. Um, and, you know, we've heard from a lot of people that this section of the book is their favorite, 
because it's concrete and useful. And I'm really glad for that. Um, if nothing else, even if a teacher never adopts any one of these particular formats, I hope it's a provocation, as you said, to think about the purpose of the lesson. You know, what do I want my kids to learn and to find a format that will work best. And, you know, the whole second part of the chapter um, is about the fact that even if you don't use one of these formats, there are certain things that every great lesson has, and you can set up your lesson any way you want, but you really should have an engaging opening, you know, that hooks kids into the worthiness of the work, and you should give them time to grapple, and you should have frequent checks for understanding, and you should have a debrief of some sort, you know. So, so again, to take the focus off the specific format um, and instead just really think about the purpose. What am I trying to do and what's going to be the best way to get the kids there? Now, one extremely common lesson format that's, that's not mentioned is, is lecture right? And whether mm-hmm. you're uh, K-12 or if you're in college. And, and so I'm thinking, well, some people might think that's the best way to teach because that's what they mm-hmm. experience as students. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also wondering, you know, uh, will some of our listeners be confused? Why wouldn't you start with a mini lesson? Why is it important for people to have to grapple on their own when you could simply tell them what they need to know? Uh, why might it be preferable for students to discover something if you could simply tell them yourself? And so I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, make your case for why is this engagement so important? Sure. I mean, I think there's a time and a place for a lecture, and we do talk about that in the book. Um, A great lecture can be really engaging, um, for kids. So I want to put that right up front. But I also think that, again, it depends on your purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, if your purpose, um, is to impart a lot of knowledge, give kids a lot of information, then a lecture might be your best bet. Mm-hmm. But if your purpose is to help kids, um, think critically and communicate and do all the things that we talked about, um, as part of the definition of deeper learning, um, you know, certainly with a lecture, you could you could easily hit the uh, the bullet of mastering um, content, mm-hmm. but you're not necessarily going to help kids think critically, communicate, develop academic mindsets, solve problems, you know, all that kind of thing. And so it it depends on your purpose. And and I would argue um, that. Um, probably students need both things. We don't want students to get to college and not, like, be ready to handle what a lecture is all about. Mm -hmm. Um, But we want kids to have the experience of creating knowledge Mm -hmm. um, because that's the deeper deeper learning that we're after. Um, So I don't dismiss lectures. And, in fact, you know, when we – in our chapter on science and history, creating scientists and historians, um, we talk about lectures um, as sometimes really important. You know, so so those content area teachers um, need to cover a lot of territory, and that's the reality. You know, standards require a ton of territory, um, and so what we acknowledge the the reality of that. And lectures can often be, or even videos sometimes can be a way to. Um, give students a broad sort of survey lay of the land of like an important time period or important people in history. Um, but it's important that they also have time to d- dive in 
um, deeper into that uh, territory through a case study or an experiment or something like that so that it doesn't always just stay um, at that survey level. I like how you tie uh, each of the different lesson formats explicitly to, to different deeper learning competencies and acknowledge that um, different ways of teaching might be more effective at addressing some uh, more mm-hmm. than others. I think that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned uh, science and social studies, and you talk about the importance of students doing the real work of scientists and historians. And I was wondering if you could give a couple of examples of, of what that might look like. Sure. Well, you know, I think that what's important in science and history, um, and we we do lump them together into one um, chapter because there's so much um, that's the same in in our view in terms of um, how to approach them from a deeper instruction perspective. Um, So, so first of all, first of all, um, the the instruction should be inquiry-based, like that's a big part of our um, approach and a lot of people, um, a lot of people's approach. So going after a central question is what scientists and historians do, right? So for example, um, a question like what impact did the people of my community, you know, whatever fill-in-the-blank community you're in, have on the civil rights movement? So that's a question uh, that can engage students for weeks, and it offers teachers an opportunity to do just what I was saying before, to toggle back and forth between the sort of survey of the time period of the civil rights movement, you know, and it's people, maybe that's through lectures, through reading, through video, et cetera, that gives students the light of the land, and then a deeper dive into a case study of people in their community, right, who had an influence on the civil rights movement. So interviewing them, writing about them. And a question like that, you know, also gets at one of the big ideas in history, that people's lives are affected by social status, you know, and that's a big idea in history across all cultures and time periods. So a central question can sort of move among these three points of reference for kids you know, the big idea in the the big ideas in the discipline, the broad survey, and then the specific case study that contextualizes it and makes it more real for kids. Um, so I think that, that being inquiry based is sort of the primary sort of push here. Um, but we also um, want kids to really learn to use the tools of the discipline um, in, in both in both history and science, you know, asking questions analyzing data, experimenting or investigating, communicating, generalizing and drawing conclusions. And it can be messy work. You know, certainly in science you want kids to wrestle with uncertainty, with not finding the answers they were expecting. Um, When I was in school, science class consisted of lectures and labs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's a misconception that labs are where students get to do the work of real scientists because they're hands-on. But the problem with labs is that they're really prescribed. You know, you, you follow steps like a recipe, and you fill in, sort of, you do your lab report in a specific way. And I hated labs for that reason, and I hate decided I hated science, too. And I would have had a better experience if I'd had to figure out my own way to answer a question, you know, and muck about and maybe not even figure it out. 
um, so, you know, we have this video in the book um, that's a great example for me of students thinking like historians, but it's like a more of a daily lesson that could happen when studying almost anything. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to a more in-depth case study. So these are 10th graders in New York State who complete document-based questions for their regents exam. And they're used to the format. They practice them. And in the class, um, their teacher gives the kids something like 20 different primary source documents about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And she asks them to become the teacher, the history teacher, and select eight of the documents that will give students the best chance to answer the document-based question. You know, so she starts off by asking them, you know, what do history uh, teachers do? You know, kids mm-hmm. really thinking about that. Like, like they choose the story, you know, in a lot of ways they choose the story, they curate the story for their students. Um, and then they have to work in groups to examine all 20 of these documents or however many there are and then prioritize them and defend their thinking to their group and eventually come to consensus about the eight most important ones that will help you answer the document-based question. So in the, the video, you hear conversations like, you know, well, I'm not sure they'll be able to understand that image of Nazi propaganda without first reading Mein Kampf, you know, because that really helps you know where the messages are coming from. And I think to have students analyzing and evaluating those documents like that and learning to really communicate their thinking is building their chops as historians. And, you know, the teacher could approach that in a different way through a lecture, <laughs> you know, assigning those primary source documents and then having a lecture um, sort of breaking down the documents, talking about the documents in class. But instead she chose to do it this way where the kids are really making meaning of them in a, in a really deep way. That's pretty beautiful to watch. Um, and then the other really important point that we make over and over in the book and actually comes through most, um, strongly in our literacy chapter is that the work of real scientists and historians involves a lot of reading and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, students need to be able to um, read complex scientific articles when they get to college, and they need support to be able to do it. So um, we recommend that that um, reading scientific articles isn't always something kids do at home for homework, you know, but that it becomes like a second teacher in the classroom and the teachers scaffold the experience for kids that they walk them through. They help them learn how to read those really complex documents and make meaning of them so that they're sort of more active uh, readers. So that's another big point we make. There's a great quote from one of the teachers that he has a friend who's a scientist who says that his work actually as a scientist is like 10% experimenting in the lab mm-hmm. and 40% writing and 50% reading. Um, and I think that's it's important for kids to know that and to have the experience of reading um, those primary source documents in history and scientific articles in science. Well, I appreciated that point from the book. I mean, you're trying to, to emphasize that regardless of what grade level you teach or what your specific content area is, um, you are a reading teacher. We're all reading teachers. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if readers had just one takeaway from the book, uh, what would you hope that it would be? Um, it's a great question. I, I really would hope that the message that everyone would get from the book is that deeper learning 
is not just for some kids. It's not just for wealthy kids. It's not just for kids in STEM magnet schools. It's not just for kids in EL schools or a high-tech high, mm-hmm. right? It's imperative for all kids to uh, have these kinds of experiences and the opportunity to sort of build those chops as critical thinkers and communicators. Um, you know, I think that if the book helps teachers make even micro moves mm-hmm. to bring deeper learning experience to their students, it's the smallest things, like using discussion protocols instead of discuss, uh, teacher-directed questions that don't involve all students, especially students that have been denied opportunities like that, then I will be happy. And if uh, teachers can see those moves as possible and not intimidating, then I'll also be happy. Um, I think also for teachers that already are bringing deeper learning experiences to their kids, I hope that they'll see um, themselves as learners who can keep sharpening their practice. You know, remember, it's about teaching quality, not teacher quality. Um, well, Libby, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just want to ask you a couple of more questions. Um, first, sure. I'm interested to know, what are three books that, that you would recommend uh, to our listeners if, they, if they've enjoyed our conversation today? Um, sure. So I um, recently uh, read a book by Elizabeth Green called Building a Better Teacher, mm-hmm. which I would recommend. I think there's a lot of um, similar ideas about kind of like breaking down instructional moves. Um, for great instruction and how those impact kids and, and how teachers can improve, I think it has a really hopeful message. You know, similar, teachers aren't born great, they become great. Um, uh, Helping Children Succeed by Paul Tuff, um, who looks at the experiences of, of kids who experience adversity in their lives and the way that stress shows up in schools and how teachers can help them. He actually uses um, EL education as an example of a, an approach that works um, for kids facing adversity, um, specifically the benefits that we already talked about, about doing purposeful academic work and, and a small advisory structure that we use in our school called CREW. So I would recommend that. And then the last one um, I read recently that really just shook me and I think is probably the most important book I've ever read is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And it's not a book strictly about education, but I think it's important for educators and everyone really to read, especially um, teachers who are working with kids in urban centers. It's just a really devastating exploration of institutional racism in our country, and I think it's a really, really important book um, for, for citizens in this country to read. So those are my three recommendations. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, I, I want to dig into those myself. Um, finally, uh, I was wondering if you could share with us, what are you working on now, and um, how can our listeners follow your work? Oh, sure. Gosh, we're working on so many things. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we're working on that's really exciting uh, um, in the on the publications team is um, – a companion guide slash workbook to leaders of their own learning. Um, leaders of their own learning has, has really taken off. It's been a really successful book for us. Um, and what we'd like to do is offer new and updated tools, templates, resources, et cetera, 
Um, we're not, it's not done yet. It's probably going to be at least a year out, but we are working on that. And we're also working on, um, a revision to our core practices book that I mentioned earlier, um, as well as a companion book that's going to go along with our K-5 literacy curriculum, which will be available um, next year. And then as soon as those things are completed, we're going to start um, pretty quickly uh, following that, working on a book about character. Um, and as always, we have a growing library of videos. We have more than 100 uh, in our series that we call Core Practices in Action, um, and those are on our website and are a great resource for teachers who may not have uh, time to read the books. Um, so I think the best way to stay um, in touch and, and sort of follow our work um, would be to sign up for the EL newsletter, um, which you can sign up for on our webpage, which is eleducation.org. Uh, it comes out... Um, once a month, and it's a place where, um, you know, information about new books would be held, um, as well as stories from our schools and things like that. Um, and then also to follow, you know, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. Anytime we write a book or an article or blog or create a new video, it gets highlighted in, in sort of all of those places, and it's a good way to just get a, a um, reminder. So I think that's the best way. Um, to follow us. It sounds like a, a busy time at EL Education. It sure is. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the literacy curriculum coming out next year is, is like a um, sort of the sun in the middle of our universe right now. And just like a lot of work around that curriculum. There's been over 6 million downloads of our curriculum out there in the world. And so a lot of people are using it and, and um, we're trying to offer as much support as we can. And there are a lot of free resources available on your website. Um, I'm yeah. looking forward to that uh, Leaders of Their Own Learning uh, companion book. Mm -hmm. As someone who, who's shared uh, that text with uh, schools I've worked with, um, I, I know that, that that's going to be valuable to teachers. Um, well, I would love to talk with you more about it, Trevor, to find out um, what kinds of things you would think would be most important in our update because we okay. want to sort of hear from the field um, and what, what people want more of. Cool. So well, we'll I'll, I'll get back in touch with you about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Libby, I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Trevor. It's been my pleasure. All right. Take care. Mm -hmm.